Mark chapter 4 as we continue in our series, Knowing Jesus, an exposition of the gospel of Mark. We want to get to know uh, our Lord better uh, as we learn about his public ministry, uh, as we learn about his parables, uh, we will learn more about him and about the gospel that we so cherish. And we pray that this will lead us uh, to uh, growth in grace and, uh, and growth in God-centered obedience. Well, please stand for the reading of God's word if you are able. Mark chapter 4 and beginning in verse 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, listen, behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil. And produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive. And may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful." But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for this familiar text of Scripture. Lord, as we come to this parable, we pray that you would teach us. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of your word and ultimately direct us to Christ, your crucified and risen son, who is our life and salvation. And we pray in his name. Amen. Be seated. Once again, we 
meet Christ at the seashore. This shouldn't be so hard for us to imagine, we who live so close to the coast. The crowd is so large. Remember, at this time, Christ is very popular. And the crowd is so large that Christ is forced to get into a boat and preach his message from the boat in the water to the great crowd standing on the beach. Verse 2 states that Christ was teaching them many things in parables. In parables. You've probably heard it said more than once that parables are earthly stories with heavenly meanings, insinuating that parables make God's revelation easier to understand. But this simple Sunday school definition is not altogether sufficient. Indeed, as we will see later, parables are in many cases intentionally meant to veil God's truth rather than to make it easier to understand. The text that we are turning our attention to this evening is, in many respects, a pivotal text as we look at this structurally. Mark 4, 1 through 20, takes our thoughts to the previous verses as well as to those that come after. Let me explain. As we look back to the previous verses, this parable causes us to consider the inception of Christ's ministry as it pertains to the coming of the kingdom of God, eternity breaking into time, the beginning of the end, as it were. Uh, Some like to ask, uh, Pastor, are we in the end times? Look at everything going on in the Middle East. I said, yes, we're in the end times. Oh, really? Yes, we've been in the end times since the New Testament. Jesus inaugurated his kingdom. Eternity is breaking into time through the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And he is adding to the number. And one day that number will be added to in its fullness. And all the inclusion of the elect and remnant Jews and all the inclusion of the elect Gentiles will be uh, full. And Christ will return. But we are in the end times. And this could happen at any time. We always need to be waiting upon the return of Christ. He could come before the end of this sermon. So, we will see how this parable is a commentary, really, on Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, when Christ proclaimed, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It causes us to contemplate all of the various responses as well that Christ's ministry has already received. Until this point, such radically different responses to the word that has been preached. Think about it. The Pharisees and the scribes, they charged Jesus with blasphemy, chapter 2, verse 7. They accused him of being possessed by Satan, chapter 3, verse 22. They had murderous plots against him, chapter 3 and verse 6. How about the crowds? Well, he was very popular with the crowds, but only because they wanted physical healing. Many of them misunderstood Christ's redemptive mission. How about his own family, how they respond to him? They said he was out of his mind. He was out of his mind. Chapter 3, verse 21. The disciples, well, they left everything behind to follow Christ, though in their midst was Judas, the one who would ultimately betray him. The responses to Christ's ministry are manifold, and it is 
the parable of the seed and the sower, which helps us to understand, helps us to, helps to explain rather why so many reject the seed of the word when it has been sown into the soil of their hearts. But as I mentioned earlier, this pivotal passage not only points back structurally to what has come before, but it also points ahead. How so? Well, this parable further clarifies the idea that Christ's mission to save his people from their sins will not be a failure. Christ does not fail. Christ will faithfully fulfill his mission and his word will accomplish the ends for which it was purposed. The sower in this text, of course, is God and his word will bring about the advancement of his kingdom exactly as he has planned. Secondly, it gives some explanation as to why people respond to Jesus the way they do throughout the remainder of his ministry. We see these four soils and we see how people often respond to his ministry. Thirdly, this parable helps us to understand more clearly the parables that follow. This is made clear in chapter 4, verse 13. Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Well, before we jump into our text, it's important that we first understand the main point of the text. Probably for most of us, the main focus has always been upon the four different soils or the four different ways that people respond to God's word. Although the four soils are certainly a significant uh, part of this parable, they should not be the main focus. Rather, we ought to focus on the sower of the seed. It is the sower of the seed, namely God or Jesus Christ, who confidently spreads the seed of the word through gospel proclamation. Remember, Christ came to proclaim the kingdom of God. And it is through the proclamation of the word that the kingdom of God advances and the harvest of God's elect is increasingly gathered, thereby fulfilling the sovereign will of God. Let me say that again. It is through the proclamation of the word that the kingdom of God advances and the harvest of God's elect is increasingly gathered, thereby fulfilling the sovereign will of God. In other words, this parable should not be seen as a failing on the sower's part or a failing on the part of the seed which has been spread. It should be seen as God's perfect plan carried out through the ministry of the word of Christ. And so... Uh, with these things in mind, I want to call this the parable of the confident sower. The parable of the confident sower. Christ commences his parable by saying in verse 3, Listen, listen, a sower went out to sow. The seed was cast by the sower upon four different types of soil. And keep in mind that every single one of us in this room is represented by one of these soils. Every single one of us. And also, we need to keep in mind that though someone might show uh, the apparent nature of one of the soils now, it may be later that they are saved and actually were the good soil. But time will tell if that is the case. And I do want to mention as well how much all of this, you probably have already uh, thought about this, how this corresponds to 
Romans chapter 11. In fact, Romans chapters 9 through 11. As we think about God and the proclamation of the word and the expansion of the harvest of God's elect being gathered from the four corners of the world, fulfilling his sovereign will. This is how we ought to think about these parables uh, over the next several weeks. The sower represents God or Christ. The seed represents the word. The soil or ground represents the hearts and responses of mankind to the word. So let's look at each soil and its corresponding reality, its explanation given later in the passage. Uh, So first of all, uh, we need to rightly understand man's response to the word of God. We need to rightly understand man's response to the word of God. The first soil we see is the pathway. The first soil we see is the pathway. Look with me at verse 4. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. What does he tell us about this later on? Well, later on, he says, And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. It's needful at this point to understand Palestinian agricultural practices. You see, the plowing of the ground took place after the sowing rather than before. So it is not strange that the seed would have been cast upon all kinds of surfaces for all of it would have been tilled. And it would have only been after the ground had been tilled that the farmer would have known just how good or bad the soil truly was. The soil Christ first speaks of is the hard pathway. This represents the person who hears the word of God and has little to no response. The devil comes and causes the word to go in one ear and out the other. There is no response. This is the person who hears the word of God preached and responds with immediate unbelief and indifference. How about the second soil? The second soil that Christ speaks of is the rocky ground. This is what I like to call the shallow response. The shallow response. Verses 5 and 6. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. And then look at verses 16 to 17. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Notice this soil, the description. They hear the word and they immediately rejoice in the world. This is great. What great news. And they perhaps attend church for a time. They're excited about what they are learning. And then trials arise in their life. Tribulation, difficulties. In other words, the person who is represented here demonstrates that their faith was not genuine because 
of their lack of willingness to suffer hardship in the Christian life. Remember the teaching from Romans 8. Look with me there if you have your Bible. In Romans chapter 8, We are taught in verse 31 and following. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now listen, shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no, in all these things, in all these things, trials, tribulations, persecution, danger, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all these things. You see... The same trials and tribulations that happen in the lives of unbelievers happen to us. Have you noticed that? Sometimes Christians will say, how can this happen to me? How can this happen to us? We see it happening to all kinds of people out there, even fellow Christians, but how can it happen to me? There's lots of mystery in all of this. But here's the thing. Temporary false faith is just that. It's temporary. Because when trials and tribulation and difficulties come, they no longer want to exercise any faith or trust in God or love to God because they believe deep down that they deserve something different, they deserve something better, and they were like the crowds on the seashore who weren't looking for mercy and everlasting life and the forgiveness of sins. They were looking for a healing or some other physical blessing. You see, this rocky ground, it describes those who suffer hardship and turn away. Our response to those who express faith in Christ should be one of rejoicing, but also one of caution. Because so many who start out do not continue in the faith. Having studied the age of Billy Graham and his crusades, we know that multiple hundreds of thousands of people over the years have come down to accept Christ, to become Christians. And yet we know that a small percentage of those carried on and continued to profess faith in Christ. Many did. Praise God. Many did. I, I personally know um, of friends. Uh, I have a a uh, dear friend in her 80s who was saved 
at uh, Glasgow Celtic football, that is soccer stadium, uh, back in the 60s, listening to Billy Graham. A teammate of mine from the Midlands of England, when I was playing soccer, was converted at Wembley Stadium under the preaching of Billy Graham. Uh, I could go on with people who came to know Christ under that ministry, praise God. But so many came down who did not continue. Many of you have seen stories over the years in your own lives. I remember the story of one young man who gave testimony of faith in Jesus. There seemed to be true spiritual fruit from all appearances. Um, I began to disciple this young man, and at one point he came under the persecution of his friends and family. They were making fun of him. They were ostracizing him, and he slowly fell away from the faith and eventually spoke slanderous words against the church. Uh, This happens. All of this happened within one year's time. This is a real-life example of the rocky ground. But then we come to the thorny ground. Verses 7 and 18 and 19, the thorny ground. I call this the uncommitted response. Verse 7, other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Verses 18 and 19, and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This is the one that is especially uh, a grave warning to people that live in an affluent culture and society. People who are on upward mobility in life. Listen to how it's described. There are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. This often happens, by the way, when people find themselves on the margins of the life of the church. When they find themselves less and less regular under the means of grace, under the proclamation of the word of God and coming to the Lord's table and witnessing baptisms and staying close to the gathered community. You see, there's deceitfulness in riches and all the world says is better for us than the word of God, than Christ. Um, This is, in many ways, a good description of the evangelical church in in America, this, this focus on the riches of this world and the desire for other things more than for God. It's what David Wells says is the biggest problem of the modern evangelical church, that God is resting too lightly on the church. Our, we are not uh, consumed with uh, God. We are consumed with ourselves and what we want from him rather than consumed with the beauty and the glory and the majesty of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the cares of the world and the riches of this world and the desires for other things more than God uh, consume us. Um, These are the thorns that come up and ultimately choke out the word in our lives. What is the consequence of this choking of the word? 
unfruitfulness which flows from unbelief. Many are committed to these things rather than to Christ. How can this be? Because rather than hearing the whole counsel of God's word preached and taught week in and week out, they are being entertained. They are hearing messages that promote self-improvement instead of repentance and the, and the exercising of faith in Christ and living a godly life by grace through faith. You see, if we never hear about the sinfulness of idolatry and the sinfulness of a self-serving, self-focused attitude, we remain comfortable in our uncommitted, thorny state. We need to be careful of these things. The first person described did not respond at all to the word. The second person responded with immediate joy, but then fell away. The third person described had the appearance of being a Christian, but it was in reality someone who was more committed to the world than they were to the word and to Christ. Now, it's probably true to say that most of us in this room this evening have heard these first three responses to the word as those who once had saving faith, but then lost their faith in salvation by the different means listed. Well, that's not right at all. We do not lose our salvation. We must clearly understand that all those, these first three responses to the word of God varied in time and circumstance, all three of them can be defined strictly as unbelief. All three together amount to soil in which the seed of the word did not ultimately bear the fruit of genuine saving faith in Christ. You see, it's not that these folks were once genuinely converted and then somehow became unconverted. They were never converted in the first place. A commentary on this, of course, is found in 1 John 2, 19. 1 John 2, 19, where John writes of apostates, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now, we need to understand that there are prodigals. There are those who walk away, who we pray will come back, and sometimes they do, and we, we pray for that. We continue to urge people to believe the gospel and to come back. But this is helping us to better understand things from God's perspective and what is truly going on with true apostates who will never return. These people left the church because they were never really possessors of true saving faith in Christ. And we must be reminded that the soil of the heart of mankind is not naturally good, but naturally evil. In fact, the Bible makes it very clear that the seed of the gospel will never naturally take root in the soil of our hearts. Naturally. 
Paul, remember in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, says, None is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. So in our natural state, our hearts are depraved and incapable of loving God. You see, something supernatural must take place for there to be a harvest of faith and fruit. This leads us to the fourth type of soil. The good soil, the good ground, which is a fruitful response. Verse 8 says, And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Verse 20, the explanation, But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Fold. Notice, this is called good soil. Good soil. Some understand this increase here in this good soil from 30 to 60 to 100 fold as the spiritual progress of sanctification in the believer. For all those who possess true faith will grow and bear uh, fruit their entire lives long in union with Christ. Others, however, see the increase representing the kingdom of God as beginning small and increasingly growing. It becomes, it starts out insignificant and small and then grows to a great multitude. This interpretation makes sense in light of verse 13, which reminds us that we will not understand the following parables if we do not understand this one. Parables which teach us about the growth of the kingdom of God. From small to big. The point is, the increase grows to full potential and blessing. And it is through the confident sower, Christ, that the seed, the word, yields the great harvest in the good soil. And so at this point, we should pause and ask, what makes the fourth soil good? Or why does the fourth soil accept the seed of the word and bring forth a harvest? Is it the fertilizer of our own goodness? No, the only thing that makes the soil good soil is God's sovereign grace. It's God's sovereign grace and mercy. And this leads to the second and much briefer point, rightly understanding God's sovereign mercy. It's only because of God's free sovereign grace that the soil of any heart is enabled to accept the word of God and bear fruit. Only after a person has been made alive in Christ or regenerated will he or she be enabled to believe the gospel and exercise faith. No one deserves grace. No one deserves mercy. We all deserve God's judgment. For the weeds of sin and thorns of rebellion exist in the garden of every single one of our hearts naturally. But God demonstrates his love towards us by sending his son to live a perfect life in accordance with the law and to die a sacrificial and atoning death. He paid the price for our sins, for our wretched soil, our life. And he rose again from the dead so that by grace through faith, we would know him, that we would be accepted by him and become a member of God's advancing kingdom and bear fruit to the glory of God. 
So we see the force of God's sovereignty and salvation. When in verse 12, Christ quotes from Isaiah 6, 9 and 10, and tells his listeners that the parables are given in order to further harden the unbeliever and at the same time reveal himself to those whom the Father had sent him to save, namely the elect. Look at verse 12. So that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. Remember, the only thing that any one of us ever deserve from God is judgment and condemnation. We are born into this world children of wrath. God has the divine right to further turn away those who are already rebelling against him, to further harden already hardened hearts. What is amazing in this text is not, dear ones, is not that there are three soils rejecting the seed. What is amazing is that there is one soil that is accepting the seed and bearing fruit. Why is that amazing? Because apart from God's condescending grace and mercy, there would be no good soil. There would be no salvation from sin, death, and hell. Do you remember the main point of the text that I stated earlier? It is through the proclamation of the word that the kingdom of God advances and the harvest of God's elect is increasingly gathered, thereby fulfilling the sovereign will or purpose of God. This parable teaches us that Christ is carrying out his mission to save his people from their sins. He does this. He still does this through the proclamation of his life-transforming word. For faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Dear ones, be confident in an age where wickedness is bearing down on our quickly changing culture, where pressures and hostility from our culture are increasing against the church, where many are fleeing, where many are walking away from the church. Take heart. The word of God shall accomplish the ends for which God has purposed. He will do it. Christ is building his kingdom. And he's doing so in his own way, on his own terms, and in his own timing. And he can be trusted. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Almighty God sends his word forth, not just to save, but also to bring judgment. Right here in this quotation, again from Isaiah, in verse 12 of our text, the parable is given not just so people can hear and understand, but so people can hear and not understand. 
God will accomplish his purposes through the proclamation of his word. Secondly, Christianity is revealed. It is not figured out and it is not earned. You see, we believe in the mystery. To you has been given the secret or the mystery of the kingdom of God, we read. Why do you believe the gospel and not your next door neighbor? It's a mystery. It's a mystery of grace. You don't deserve it. But he has given it to you, this great salvation. And we have no reason to boast. The Lord has done it. Thirdly, we must ask, where do I stand in relation to the kingdom of God? Which one of these soils presently represents me? Well, my prayer for all of us, and for those who may be watching online, is that we would, by his grace, be this fourth soil, that we would call upon the name of the Lord by his grace and be saved. Fourthly, this text calls Christians to fruit-bearing, living in obedience to the word of God. Notice the progression in verse 20. They hear the word of God, and they believe it, and then they bear fruit. God calls his redeemed people to live with humility and gratitude and obedience to the commands of God as they respond joyfully to the glorious work of redemption accomplished by his Son. We do this in the context of our families, our marriages, our friendships, our co-workers, our schools, our church, and anywhere else God has placed us in our lives. And so, dear ones, as we exercise our faith upon Christ through word and sacrament, we will ever increasingly bear fruit to the glory of God and the further advancement of his kingdom. May we, by his grace, as that fourth soil, bear much fruit as the kingdom of God grows, as his kingdom advances here in the low country and to the ends of the earth. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this parable. It is extraordinary. It does, O Lord, teach us something of the responses that Christ has received up until this point in his ministry and thereafter and today. And Lord, it also teaches us that Christ, your Son, through the ministry of the Word in this world, is the sower who is confidently sowing. The Word is going forth and it does not return void. It is doing exactly what you send it to do. And you are drawing to yourself men and women and boys and girls savingly that we would know your grace, that we'd be reconciled to you, that we would walk with you in humility and love and by faith. Oh Lord, it seems that everybody has faith in this world. Most, it seems, have faith in the things of this world. But Lord, we thank you for the gift of faith, faith in Christ, and we pray, oh Lord, that you would grant this gift to all in this room. 
that we would all be united to your Son, exercising faith in your Son and in what he has done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, I invite you to please stand as we sing our hymn of